Before Grant Won His Stars by E. J. Edwards. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. We know, with a good deal of detail, the story of Grant's successes from the time of Belmont to the day when he delivered over the White House to his successor. But the part of his career contained in the months just prior to the outbreak of the Civil War, and the weeks just after, or until he received his colonelcy, is so little known that all that can be said of it by almost anyone is that it was a period of trial, of hard luck, and at times almost of despair. It is possible now, however, to give something like a detailed narrative of that time, because one who was near Grant in Galena, who saw him in the leather store many times, who went with him to a meeting called by the citizens of Galena in answer to Lincoln's first call for troops, who had him as a companion from Galena to the Illinois capital, and as a roommate in Springfield while Grant was there struggling desperately to gain an entrance into the service, is now living, and can recall those days with vividness. He is Brevet Major General A. L. Chetlane, now residing in Chicago, and known to every member of the Loyal Legion, both as a fearless fighter in many battles, and as the man who was the intimate of Grant, in the days when Grant had few intimates. General Chetlane's ability to speak accurately of Grant in those early times is endorsed by Colonel Fred D. Grant, who said in answer to a question, Oh, yes, I know General Chetlane very well, and he was the intimate and faithful friend of my father in the early days of the war. It is from General Chetlane, in the main, that this narrative has been obtained, although his precise language is not followed, and although some of the incidents narrated were collected from other sources of information. With this understanding, the story will be told as an historic narrative whose accuracy can be vouched for by a living witness. In a few particulars, it differs from General Grant's own account of the same period. But General Chetlane has been at pains to assure himself that his own recollection is right. Captain Grant went to Galena to serve his father as a clerk in the leather and hardware store of J. R. Grant and Company. He gladly accepted that employment a year or two before the outbreak of the war. He received, at first, forty dollars a month, but his pay was afterward raised to seventy-five. He rented a little cottage, still standing, and paid twelve dollars a month rent. This left a sum upon which he could support his family only by the closest economy. A clerk who would rather talk than trade. As Grant had been a captain in the regular army, and had seen service in the Mexican War, the people of Galena, for a little while, looked upon him as a young man who had had something of a career. 
He acquired a local distinction, however, not due to his military experience, but, strange to say, to his loquacity. The subsequent silent man of the war was perhaps the most continuous and rapid talker of all the clerks in the town, which would seem to show that the taciturnity of Grant in the field, like that of Sherman in the Treasury Department, was assumed because it was found to be a necessity. Upon stormy days, or at other times when customers were few and idle moments plenty, the young men used to gather in the Grant store where they found Captain Grant very ready for a chat. He wore in the winter months a blue army overcoat that had seen much faithful service, for it was a relic of the Mexican War, and very vivid is the recollection of General Chet Lane of that coat, of a soft and rather rusty black felt hat, and of a stream of interesting comment and reminiscence. His talk, however, was never frivolous and never coarse. It was marked always by strong common sense. Captain Grant talked with great freedom about the political situation, expressing very frank opinions of the public men of the day, and now and then setting forth his reasons for believing that the country was drifting into trouble. He would frequently sit and talk all day, sometimes forgetting that the dinner hour had come until he was reminded of it. Thus Grant came to be known in Galena as a clerk who had no special fondness for the counter or for leather, but who would rather sit and chat than sell goods or take in money. When Lincoln's call for 75,000 volunteers was published, and with it the report that Fort Sumter had been fired upon, a public meeting was held in Galena, of which the mayor of the city was made chairman. He was not a very enthusiastic Union man, and made a weak, apologetic, timid speech. Under the effect of his remarks, the meeting adjourned without decisive action. Most of the people present were filled with indignation, and another meeting was called for a day or two later. When the public-spirited citizens were asking themselves what man among them ought to be asked to preside at this second meeting, someone said, Why not ask Captain Grant? The suggestion was thought a happy one, and Augustus Chetlane and one or two others called upon Captain Grant at the leather store. As nearly as can be remembered, this conversation took place. Captain, we are going to have another public meeting tonight, and we don't propose to have a half-hearted man preside over it. We all feel that you are the man to call the meeting to order and to state its object. What? I? said the young captain in surprise. Oh, no. You had better get somebody else. I never made a speech in my life, and I don't believe I could. Oh, but you're not asked to make a speech. Just call the meeting to order, and state in the plainest way that Galena is sure to do its part in furnishing the volunteers Lincoln asks for, and that an opportunity will be given for enrollment as soon as the meeting adjourns. Captain Grant talked rapidly and with great earnestness of the necessity for raising troops at once, and of the way in which it could be done, until at last someone said to him, My captain, 
If you will only talk to the meeting as you talk to us, they will say that you have made a pretty good speech. But only after it was suggested to him that the chief reason why he was asked to preside was that he had served in the Mexican War as a captain in the regular army, did he at last consent. Grant as Chairman of a War Meeting Captain Grant came upon the platform at the appointed hour in a shy, hesitating way, and took a chair which was pointed out to him behind the table. A number of the more prominent citizens sat nearby. At the proper moment he arose, and in a clear enough voice, but with a manner which plainly revealed embarrassment, he said something like this. This meeting has been called for the purpose of taking action upon the President's call for volunteers. We in Galena must do our part. We ought to be able to organize a company right away. It is a time for the highest patriotism, for the government is in peril, and it must be sustained. When he had finished, he sat down and seemed glad that his part was ended. Others made ringing speeches, after which an opportunity for enrollment was offered. The first man to step up and put his name to the paper was Augustus L. Chetlane, Grant's friend. He looked up after he had signed his name, and saw Grant smiling upon him, and by a common impulse each extended a hand to the other. Enlistments followed rapidly. The next day it was determined to send a committee to a little town some twelve miles from Galena, that a public meeting might be held there, and an opportunity given for the enlistment of volunteers. Grant was invited to be one of this committee. He accepted, and he seemed pleased when he was told that a young lawyer of Galena named John A. Rawlins would accompany him, though the two were at this time not much known to each other personally. Rawlins, energetic and studious, was thought to have a successful career before him at the bar, and had gained the highest respect in that community. His path and Grant's till that night had lain quite apart, but that night their paths were merged in a manner that the men themselves little dreamed of as they started out upon a twelve-mile drive over the muddy roads. Grant suffers an interruption in a war speech. When they reached the village, they were conducted to the schoolhouse, which was the only public hall. As they entered, Rawlins said to Grant, You will have to make a speech. Well, I will try, answered Grant. I can't make a speech, but I'll say something, and you will have to do the real speech-making. So Captain Grant was introduced, and it was explained that he had presided at the Galena meeting. He spoke in a conversational way, very much as he would have done had he met the people he had dressed in his father's store. But his talk was earnest and full of common sense. But in the very midst of his speech there came a catastrophe. The long stovepipe beneath which he was standing broke, and the pieces fell to the floor at his feet. He was unhurt, but he was blackened from head to foot with soot. Brushing it off as well as he could, he continued his speech, and in his earnestness made his hearers soon forget his rather ridiculous appearance. Rawlins followed, 
in an impassioned address, and as a result of the meeting, twelve young farmers came forward and signed their names to the enlistment roll, and promised to go the next day to Galena and join the company organizing there. Grant and Rawlins drove back home that night, reaching Galena about midnight. An Early Instance of Grant's Executive Ability The following day Grant began to reveal his executive capacity. It was already plain that Galena would furnish a full company, and there arose the question of providing uniforms. In his autobiography, General Grant says that these uniforms were provided through the generosity and activity of patriotic women of Galena, but in that he has fallen into error. With Mr. Chet Lane, Grant himself went to the leading tailor shop in Galena on the third morning and asked the proprietors how much cloth they had suitable for making into military uniforms. They found they had sufficient cloth to uniform some eighty men. How long will it take you, using your entire force and calling in help, to make up these uniforms? asked Grant. The tailors decided it could be done within two or three days. Do it, said Grant, and we will see that you are paid. Some citizens of financial standing then went to the leading bankers of Galena and secured an advance, amounting to some $1,400, to pay for the uniforms. This money was afterwards paid back by the state treasurer. The company being enrolled, Captain Grant's experience was helpful in the preliminary drill and the details of organization. Then the question arose, who should be chosen for officers? Every man in the company was desirous that Grant accept the captaincy, but this he declined to do. So Mr. Chet Lane was chosen captain. In conversation with Captain Chet Lane soon after, Grant said, I don't want to overestimate my abilities, and I don't think I do, when I say that I feel that my education at West Point and my service in the Army have qualified me to take the colonelcy of a regiment. I feel pretty sure that I could command a regiment creditably enough, and I suppose that I have a share of military pride, which causes me to feel justified in asking the governor to give me a regiment, and I'm going to do it. Grant goes to Springfield in search of service. On the day when the Galena Company was to depart for the state capital, Springfield, patriotic enthusiasm was most gloriously stirred in the crowd. The company in the new uniforms paraded the principal streets and then turned toward the railway station. As they passed the leather stores of J.R. Grant and Company, Captain Chet Lane saw standing in the doorway a short, slender young man wearing the overcoat which had done service in the Mexican War. Upon his head was the familiar and faded, soft felt hat. In his hand he held an old-fashioned, well-worn traveling bag. Captain Chetlane nodded and received in reply a recognition which was half military salute and half a friendly sign. When the company had passed, the young man stepped from the doorway, fell in behind, and marched, with modest step at the rear, 
carrying his faded carpet-bag, and looking neither to right nor left. A lad of nineteen, standing where he could see this modest departure, was greatly impressed by it. Not so much the military music, the cheering of the throng, the excitement of the moment, as that inconspicuous swinging into line of the leather clerk, sent the patriotic blood of the youngster tingling, so that he was impelled to enlist. He did, beginning as a private, and coming out as a brigadier general. He is General Livermore of Boston. At the railway station, just before the train started, the Reverend Mr. Vincent, now Bishop Vincent, addressed the company, standing upon a freight car as an improvised pulpit. On the way to Springfield the train was delayed for an hour or two, and at Grant's suggestion the company went to a neighboring field where Captain Grant put them through some of the simpler tactics. A cold reception on all sides. Captain Grant carried with him to Springfield nothing except the change of linen which was contained in the old carpet-bag, and a letter of introduction to Governor Yates, written by Elihu B. Washburn, then a member of Congress from the Galena District. The capital was in a turmoil. Gaily uniformed volunteered officers were proud to display their buttons and their activity. The governor was hedged about by these fussy soldiers, who thought they were actually engaged in war, although they were only playing at it. Immediately after the Galena Company reached Springfield, General Grant went to the State House to present his letter to Governor Yates. An acquaintance had some business which called him to the capital. As he walked down the corridor, he saw a man sitting upon a bench and looking almost the picture of despair. The gaily dressed young soldiers brushed by, some of them turning for an instant to glance at this man, who seemed almost like an outcast, so strong was the contrast between his appearance and theirs. The acquaintance recognized him, and going up to him said, "'Why, Captain, what are you doing here?' Well, I am trying to get my letter of introduction to Governor Yates, and I have been waiting so long that I don't know as it will be of any use. However, I am going to stay here until the building closes. The friends saw that Grant was a little despondent, and suggested to him that the governor was very busy, but that he would sooner or later be sure to receive anyone who bore a letter from Congressman Washburn. A little while after, Grant was able to find someone who would condescend to take his letter of introduction to the governor, and after a while this messenger returned, saying that the governor would see Captain Grant as soon as he had leisure. The governor must have been very busy, for leisure did not come until another hour or two had passed. When at last Grant went into the governor's room, the governor, casting a quick glance at him, and perceiving that he was coarsely dressed and shy of manner, seemed to decide to make the interview a short one. So he said, Ah, you are Captain Grant. What can I do for you? Well, governor, I have come to see if I can be of any service to you, and I hope that by and by 
you will be able to give me a commission, answered Grant, adding that he was willing to do anything that would help the governor in those trying times. He then referred very briefly to his experience as an officer in the regular army. When Grant had finished, Governor Yates said, Well, I don't know that there is anything you could do. You might stay around for a day or two. Perhaps the adjutant general may have something that he can give you to do. Suppose you see him. Grant, a petty clerk under a state adjutant general. Upon him, the adjutant general also put the critical eye when Grant applied to him, and seemed, like all the others, to be disposed to measure the unassuming man by his clothes rather than by his record and his intelligence. He, too, said, Well, I don't know that there is anything you can do to help us. We are pretty well organized. But, he added, Hold on. You must know how to rule blanks for making out of such reports as we make up. You certainly learned how to do that when you were in the army. Oh, yes, replied Captain Grant. I know how those blanks should be ruled. Well, you see, continued the adjutant general, we are short of these blanks. The department at Washington cannot forward us the printed blanks as fast as we need. The demand is so great. I think I'll set you to work ruling blanks. You may come around tomorrow. Captain Grant came, according to appointment, and paper, ink, and pen with ruler were given to him, but he was not permitted to have a desk in the room where most of the clerks of the adjutant general worked. That was a room well carpeted, a room with handsome desks and other convenient and comfortable furniture. Just outside of it was a little anteroom, where the floor was bare, and the only furniture was a plain table and a hard-bottomed chair. There they put Captain Grant and set him to work ruling blanks. And thus, in that humblest of clerical work, he, who was a few years later to command all its armies, and finally to rule the nation, began his formal service in the war. A day or two later, Captain Chetlane had occasion to go to the adjutant general's office, and to get there he must needs pass, as everyone did, through the little anteroom. He saw what he thought was a familiar figure, at least a figure dressed in familiar clothing, bending over a table and at work upon some papers that seemed to be reports. He touched him on the shoulder. Without moving otherwise than by slowly turning his head and looking up, the clerk responded to the touch. Then, meeting the eye of Captain Chetlane, an expression almost of despair and of humiliation came to his face, and he turned again to his work. "'What are you doing, Captain?' said Chetlane. "'Oh, I'm ruling blanks. Work such as any clerk could do.' I can do it no longer. There's no place for me here, no chance, and I'm going back to Galena. No, I would not do that, Captain, cried Chetlane. Be patient. Everything is in a turmoil here. Even if you give up this work, don't go back to Galena. I am sure some chance will come for you very soon. Saying nothing, 
Grant went on with his work. Grant's purse runs low. That evening he met Captain Chetlane again, and he then told him that he had decided to remain in Springfield a little longer, but that to do so he must practice the strictest economy. Said he, I can't live at the hotel any longer. It costs too much. But I have found a room across the street. It is of good size and has a double bed in it. The price is three dollars a week. Now, if you will come and share it with me, it will cost us only a dollar and a half a week each, and we'll get our meals where we can find them. Captain Chitlane agreed to this proposition, and thus became Grant's roommate, and remained with him until his company was mustered into the service and joined its regiment. Captain Grant must have lived very plainly at this time. He did not complain. He went to the state capitol every day, and returned every evening more and more despondent. Twice he decided to go back to Galena. Once he determined to go back by the next train, and it was only at Chetlane's urgent persuasion that he decided to remain a few days longer. In the latter part of May, Governor Yates detailed Captain Grant to look after Camp Yates, and that occupied him for a time, but gave no promise of advancement. At last one day he came to Captain Chetlane in camp and said to him, They have asked me to go down to Mattoon to muster in a regiment which is going into camp there. And then he also confessed that his money had so completely given out that he would be unable to make the journey unless some friend would advance him fifteen dollars. The small sum was found, and Grant went down to Mattoon and spent a day or two with the new regiment giving its officers the benefit of his military experience. He returned to Springfield, and again there was a time of waiting. Grant's services declined in four states. Thinking there might be an opportunity for him at St. Louis, he finally went there. But although he met Captain Nathaniel Lyon and some other Army friends, and even rode with them when they set out to break up a Confederate camp, he found no reason to believe that the state of Missouri would accept his services. So he returned to Springfield, and again almost determined to go to his home. Then he thought of McClellan, who was then in Cincinnati, preparing to leave for the front. He knew McClellan slightly, and was certain that McClellan knew of him. So he went to Cincinnati, but encountered there the same indifference and bad luck. McClellan himself had just gone to Washington. His brilliantly uniformed staff were in and about the hotel, but there was no offer of comradeship when Captain Grant timidly introduced himself to two or three of them. Of McClellan, he said to Colonel Chetlane, Chetlane had now been chosen lieutenant colonel of the 12th Illinois Volunteers. I look upon McClellan as one of the brightest officers of the regular army who has received appointment in the volunteer service, and he is now to make his mark in this war. There was nothing to do but return to Springfield. On the way back, Grant stopped over for a day in Indianapolis, thinking that perhaps his services might be accepted by Governor Morton. 
but a few hours there showed him plainly that political colonels and political influence were quite as strong in Indiana as in Illinois. When he again reached Springfield, his mind was made up. Seeking out Colonel Chetlane, he bade him good-bye, and then returned to his home in Galena, utterly despondent, and believing that, for the time at least, there was no chance for an obscure military man, since the politicians were making the officers for the regiments and brigades. A Colonel at Last but without horse or uniform. In his brief services at Mattoon, however, Grant had sown better seed than he knew. The ability, energy, and thorough understanding of himself and his duties that he displayed when mustering in the 21st Regiment of Illinois Volunteers had made a deep impression on some of the officers and many of the men. For some reason, the colonel of the 21st resigned. At that time, the officers of a regiment had the privilege of signifying to the governor their preferences for the office of colonel. Among the officers of the 21st was a Captain Patterson, who afterwards was an able judge in one of the Illinois districts. Captain Patterson suggested, when the matter of a new colonel came up for discussion, that the officers endorse that Captain Grant who had mustered the regiment in. The idea was received with instant favor. A vote was taken, the proposition was carried, and a petition setting forth the facts was sent to Governor Yates. A few days later, Governor Yates sat talking with the state auditor, Mr. Dubois, father of the present Senator Dubois of Idaho. Suddenly, Governor Yates took up a paper and said, Look here, Dubois. I have just received a petition from the officers of the 21st Regiment asking me to appoint as colonel of that regiment that Captain Grant, Washburn's friend, who was around the State House a little while ago. What would you do about it? Do about it? Why, I'd appoint him. He's a good man. I talked with him. He has a clear head. He is full of common sense. He knows something about military affairs, and if these men want him, I'd appoint him. The next morning, Captain Grant, sitting in his father's leather store, received a telegram from Governor Yates, asking him if he would accept an appointment as Colonel of the 21st Regiment. Accept an appointment? Would an eagle fly? Grant telegraphed back instantly that he would gladly command the regiment, and as soon as possible went again to Springfield. He received his commission and joined the regiment, and the firm impulse of his discipline became immediately apparent. But Grant was not yet freed from humiliation. He had been unable to procure any better clothes than those which he wore when he first went to Springfield. He had an old cavalry saber, which he had found in the arsenal, and that, strapped to his waist, was the only military badge that he wore, and it served well enough when he was drilling the regiment. But he could appear on dress parade only in full uniform, and he did not possess the money to buy a uniform, a sword, or a horse. For more than two weeks he left to Lieutenant Colonel Alexander the duty of leading the regiment on dress parade. 
No man but himself, in all the regiment, knew that the only reason why he did not himself take command was because his clothing would not permit him to do so. In this emergency, Grant wrote to his father and asked for the loan of four hundred dollars, the money to be used in buying a uniform, a sword, and a horse. The father did not see his way clear to advancing the money, but Ulyss, as he was known in the store, had a good friend in the junior partner, Mr. Collins. Knowing of Grant's request for a loan, Mr. Collins obtained the money at the bank and sent it to Colonel Grant, not even indicating at the time that it was sent by himself and not by Grant's father. Along with a draft for $400 was enclosed a promissory note put in out of motives of delicacy so that Colonel Grant would feel that he had borrowed the money, whereas Mr. Collins looked upon the money as a contribution to the cause of the Union. With the part of the money, Grant bought the famous yellow horse, which became afterwards known as Old Clayback, and as soon as he could have a uniform made, he appeared upon dress parade. Grant's Promotion to the Rank of Brigadier General A common belief has been that Grant owed his appointment as colonel to the influence of Congressman Washburn. Mr. Washburn's service to Grant came later and consisted in the procuring for him promotion to the rank of brigadier general. In the summer, when most of the northern troops had taken the field, and when Congress had conferred upon President Lincoln the necessary power, Lincoln summoned the Illinois delegation in Congress to a conference, and said to them, I have authority to appoint six brigadier generals from the state of Illinois and I want you to agree in recommending suitable men for these places. Mr. Washburn suggested Colonel Grant of the 21st Illinois Volunteers. He had heard of Grant's efficiency in organizing and drilling the 21st Regiment. At his suggestion, every member of the Illinois delegation joined with him in the recommendation. For the other five brigadierships, no one received a unanimous recommendation, and it was because Grant was endorsed without division that his commission was dated back to the early days of May, which made him the senior brigadier general of the state. After Grant, by a swift, shrewd movement, which the whole North applauded, had taken his brigade over the Ohio River and gained possession of Paducah, he met Chet Lane, now become a colonel, one morning, and said, I've got to go through tomorrow what will be to me a most unpleasant and distasteful experience. You remember, perhaps, hearing me speak of General C.S. Smith. He was my old instructor at West Point. A nobler man never lived, nor a finer soldier. Tomorrow morning, he is compelled to report to me as commanding officer, and it doesn't seem right. That experience was passed through the next day with all due formality. Happily, the two generals knew perfectly well what was in the mind of each, and there went out from each silent but potent tributes of respect.
end of Before Grant Won His Stars by E.J. Edwards, read by Rick Rodstrom.